Amen. Well, again, happy Father's Day. And um, it's awesome to be able to gather, isn't it, on Father's Day and to worship the one really, really perfect father. Um, you know, it's always, it's always interesting when it's Father's Day, Mother's Day, those kinds of things. They tend to be emotional um, for different reasons. Some of us are rejoicing today because we have had a wonderful father and he's had a great influence in our lives. Some of us are hurting today because our father is gone. Some of us are hurting because we didn't have a great father and we're feeling miss, that we miss out on that. There's a lot of emotion that comes in this. And, and if there's anything we all know for sure from experience, because we either had fathers or we are fathers, is that there are no perfect fathers this side of heaven. But isn't it awesome to gather together as the body of Christ, as the children of God, and worship the one perfect father? And, and so... You know, on Father's Day, as I was thinking about Father's Day, I was reminded just as a kid that, that my dad was a hero to me. You know, I think a lot of us can relate to that, right? When I was little, I just thought my dad was amazing. And, and I was amazed at the things he knew how to do and how he had the answers to all the questions and how he just seemed confident. And always, I always felt secure when he was around, like it was going to be okay and he could handle it and all that kind of stuff. And he, he was really a hero to me, and in many ways to this day, continues to be a hero to me. And, and I'm thankful for that, because we need heroes, don't we? Um, there's lots of stories of heroism. And we're going to talk about heroism a little bit today. And um, I want to start by just hitting some, some sort of contemporary um, examples. How many of you know who this person is? Anybody know who that is? Nobody know? How about if we show you this picture? That's Noah Galloway. Uh, how many of you have seen him on television? What did you see him do? Dancing with the stars. Um, so he was not famous to us uh, until he went on Dancing with the Stars, the most wonderful television show in the history of the world. And... Um, and obviously, it's a big deal for somebody in his physical condition to go on a TV show and dance at kind of a professional level. It's astonishing when you realize that, that he lost his, uh, his uh, left arm just below the shoulder, and he left, lost his left leg above the knee. And, um, and so, he, the, but the point is not that he was able to dance. The point is that he lost his limbs heroically, that he was sent over on behalf of our country to fight to protect freedom and to protect people and to release captives and to do those kinds of things. And in that process, he was, uh, you know, part of an attack where an IED hit him and exploded and he nearly lost his life and he, in, he did lose his arm and his leg. And uh, he has gone on not just to be an important, you know, cel celebrity on television who dances, he, he really was even got into that position because uh, after a process of coming back and being deeply, deeply depressed and diving into alcohol and just sleeping his days away and all of that kind of stuff that he was dealing with, you know, post-traumatic stress, that there came a point when he decided he was going to turn his life around and that he still had a life that was worth investing and he started investing in people. And uh, he, he became a, um, a trainer, a physical trainer. And he runs marathons. 
Fest, and he does Ironman competitions, and he goes around and speaks to groups of people to encourage them to realize that no matter what happens in your life, you still have the opportunity to make your life matter and to make your life count, and God's not finished with you yet. And so he goes around encouraging people who are hurting to sort of trust that their life is not over. And so his heroism didn't end when he was in the Middle East and he was injured. His heroism is continuing to this day. And we look at a guy like that and go, man, that's a hero. Let me show you another picture to see if you know who that is. Anybody know who that is? <clears throat> his face has been in the news a lot lately. His name is Pastor Saeed Abedini. Pastor Saeed, you may have heard about, is in prison in Iran, and he is there and has spent the last 1,000 days in one of the worst prisons in the world. Um, and we get reports on what's going on for him in prison, and it's not good. The last article I saw was about a week ago. He was attacked by the other inmates and beaten nearly to death and continues to be in danger and attack. Now, <clears throat> he's in prison. He's an American an Iranian-American pastor. He's in prison in Iran for sharing his faith, for telling somebody about the love of Jesus Christ. And he's been there for the last three years, and he's serving an eight-year sentence. And they're talking about transferring him now to the only prison in that part of the world that is worse and more dangerous. And so the, there's, a, there's an outcry with, uh, within um, different organizations in America uh, the United Nations is involved. Everybody's trying to, to get his human rights supported and all that kind of stuff. And yet he continues to be able to write letters and to have visitors. And when he has those visits and he writes those letters, he keeps encouraging the body of Christ and saying that while he is suffering and he's hoping that it will not continue, that is a small price to pay compared to the price that Jesus paid for him. And his witness is that much stronger. And more and more Muslims are coming to know Jesus Christ because Pastor Saeed is suffering. If you haven't already been praying for Pastor Saeed, please be praying for him. Please be praying for his family. When you do a search on the internet, I, I needed a picture of him. I just Google searched and under images, Pastor Saeed, and all these pictures come up. And most of them are pictures like of him with his wife and his two little kids at Disneyland. You know, he's just one of us. He's just a Christian who's willing to walk with Jesus, even if it might cost him something, and he's paying a huge price. That's a hero, right? We need heroes. And the Bible is full of examples of amazing heroism. And we start hearing about them, if we're around the church at all, we start hearing about these stories from the time we're in nursery. And they tell us about David and Goliath, and they tell us about Gideon and how he led a ragtag army of 300 farmers into battle, and how those men were used by God to defeat a great army. We see stories of people like Joshua, who, who uh, led the, the people of Israel across the Jordan River into the promised land, conquest after conquest, facing odds that were overwhelming, knowing that God is God, and he's going to keep his promises, and he said, Whatever you do, you do. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he did it. And we go on and on and we read these stories and we're astonished to see these great men and women of faith and how their faith was so profound in their lives that they actually got out and did something. It wasn't just that they thought that the things that God's word had to say were true. It wasn't just that they 
that they hoped that God was faithful. They actually walked in that faith, and they did the things that God called them to do. And we see these amazing stories, and we could just go on through the pages of Scripture and name hero after hero after hero, say, man, that is amazing. I think one of the great heroes of the Old Testament, for whatever reason, I don't know, he doesn't get the same kind of um, attention that some of the others do. Like, for instance, you guys, you all know who Elijah was, right? Elijah was a prophet, and he goes down in history as the great prophet, right? In fact, even at the time of the transfiguration of Christ, it was Jesus there, and who, who else showed up? Moses and Elijah, right? Elijah was this great prophet. He performed miracles. He was this amazing hero and all that kind of stuff, and we've all heard about Elijah to great extent, but you know who you almost never hear about? It's the prophet who followed Elijah, and his name is Elisha right? And Elisha was the servant of Elijah. And then when Elijah was taken up into heaven by a chariot, which is kind of a pretty impressive way to go, right? When he was taken up into heaven, um, he basically put his mantle, which is a symbol of his uh, prophetic status, upon Elisha. And he said that that Elisha would now have a double portion of the spirit of Elijah and it's interesting when you, when you read their stories, which one leads right into the next in the books of Kings, and you read their stories, you see that Elijah performed eight miracles, that there were eight major miracles that Elijah performed or God performed through Elijah. And you know how many he performed through Elisha? Sixteen. This double portion. And, and so we see these amazing things in the life of this guy, Elisha. Um, and his story is found in 1 Kings 19, that's where it begins, and it goes all the way through 2 Kings 13. And I just want to encourage you, if you want to be encouraged in your faith, if you want to be stretched and strengthened in your faith this week, in your own time, read those chapters. Go home this week and read those chapters. Just begin in 1 Kings 19 and read all the way through 2 Kings 13, and look at the life of this man as it unfolds, because all we're going to do for today is just touch on it. But there were a number of things that he did, and obviously these are miracles. God did these things through him. But um, for instance, uh, did you know that he parted water? You know, we know that, that God used Moses to part the Red Sea. We know that God used Joshua to part the Jordan River. Um, did you know that he also used Elijah to part the Jordan River? And then again, he used Elisha to part the Jordan River. And so um, that was an amazing thing. There was another time when there was this, this town, this village, where everything was good and everything was peaceful and, and everything was provided for them, except that the water was putrid. You couldn't drink the water, and literally they couldn't grow crops, and the, and the city was dying because the water was bad, just like it is in a lot of third world countries today, right? And so they called out on Elisha, and they said, what can we do? We have this wonderful place that God has given us in the promised land, but the water is bad. And Elisha, of course, um, did what anyone would do. He got some salt, threw it in the water, and made it clean. And then the water was clean, and the whole life of the village was better from that point on. There was another time, there's all these weird stories about Elisha. There's another time when the prophets are out there, there's like this what you would call basically a school of prophets in the time of Elisha. And there are these young people that are basically priests or ministers or prophets that are coming up that are being discipled and mentored by Elisha and others. And um, they send them all out one day because there's some uh, area that needs to be cleared and some trees that need to be cut down. 
in order to create this space for them to live. And so they go out there and they're using axes. Now, we think of this using an axe to cut down a tree. Now, if you had a big tree to cut down today, would you use an axe? What would you use? Chainsaw, right? Why in the world would you use your own strength to do that when a machine will do it for you, right? So we think chainsaw, we would use a chainsaw. They used an axe. Do you realize this is the very early days of having access to iron so that they could use an axe? This was cutting edge technology. And they went out and they're cutting down these trees and, and iron was extremely hard to come by and extremely rare and extremely expensive. And this guy has this axe that he has borrowed that has an iron head. And when he swings it, the head of the axe flies off and lands in the water and sinks to the bottom. And he comes to Elisha and he cries out and he says, he says, listen, I lost the axe head. It's in the lake. It's gone. I didn't know what to do because I borrowed this. There's no way I have the money to replace this. And Elisha just breaks a stick off the tree, touches the water, and the axe head floats to the top, and they just pick it up and put it back in the axe and give it back to the owner. All these weird miracles. You're like, well, you know, don't you want to, like, I don't know, like raise the dead or something? Why do you got to raise an axe head? Well, he raised the dead too. He, he raised a dead boy. He defeated an army by striking them blind through his prayer and then led them into captivity. I mean, over and over and over, you hear these amazing stories, and probably the big one is when this woman's son dies and he lays himself over and breathes into his mouth and the warmth returns to his body and he stands up and he returns him to his mother. I mean, how many people have raised the dead? This guy is a hero of the faith. This guy is a spiritual giant. He really, really lived the life of faith. And you look at something like that and you go, okay, we've been talking about faith now for two months. And we've been talking about what does it look like to live the life of faith? Well, this must be it, right? Elisha, somebody like that who just absolutely has such power from God to do amazing things. That's the life of faith. And you're right, it is. But the life of faith doesn't always look like that. Interestingly, what you will find if you go and read those chapters that I encourage you to read this week, if you go and read those chapters, you will find that there is a story that runs concurrent with Elisha's story and intersects Elisha's story, and it's a story of a person whose name we don't even know. All we know is where she lived. She lived in a place called Shunem, and historically, she's just been known as the Shunemite woman, and her story intersects with Elisha's story. Because as he traveled in his ministry, he regularly passed through her village. We know a couple things about her. We know that she was married and that her husband was exceedingly old, okay? So kind of like Linda, okay? So <laughs> no, I didn't mean you were old. I mean your husband is exceedingly old. Sorry, I shouldn't have to explain my gym jokes by now, should I? <laughs> Anyway, we know that she had a husband who was exceedingly old. She had no children before she met Elisha. During her, during her time of knowing Elisha, he prayed over her and prophesied over her, and she conceived and bore a son, and that was the son that grew up who eventually died and he raised again. Um, we know that she was very wealthy, and in that area, that she was among the wealthiest people. Um, and we know that whenever Elisha would pass through, she would care for him. She would feed him. She would give him lodging. She would give him a place to rest. In fact, um, it wasn't long before she did a room addition on her house 
in order to make space for Elisha so that he had kind of his own apartment connected to the compound where they lived so that whenever he came through, he would have a place to be. So I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. And I want to pick it up in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. Because I want you to see this amazing heroic life of this woman. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8. Now there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem, there, where there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. And it was so, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I perceive this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please, let us make a little walled-up chamber and let us set a bed in there for him and a table and a chair and a lampstand, and it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. Is that amazing? Isn't that incredible? What a life of faith! She built a room! Incredible! What a heroic, miraculous life this is! Or not. All she did was build a room. All she did was make some meals. All she did was give him a place to rest. All she did was try to encourage him in his ministry. She did whatever she could do. She wasn't a prophet. She wasn't a king. She wasn't a general. She, she had some resources, some money, a house. She decided to use those things for God's kingdom. So it's so interesting that you see these two stories running together like this. This guy who, who um, produces all this miraculous fruit in his life, and then next to him, this woman whose name we don't even know, she's just a Shunammite woman who built an apartment so that he would have a place to stay. That's about it. Never performed a miracle. Never fought a giant. Never um, parted a body of water. Never confronted a king. She was never anybody's leader. She was never anybody's conqueror. She was never anybody's anything except this woman who supported Elisha's ministry. Just a woman who saw an opportunity to serve God by serving Elisha. It wasn't enough to get her name in the papers. And yet, she was living a life of faith. Because when that opportunity came... She took full advantage of it. She did what she could for the glory of God as she was given opportunity. And that, my friends, is what the life of faith looks like. Sometimes we read these Bible stories about great men and women of faith, and we get this mistaken idea that somehow faith is about miracles and conquests and, and terrible risks and amazing accomplishments. And sometimes that's true. We certainly have a lot of those stories. But, you know, all of that, when you read the Bible, I don't know if it's just me, but when I read these stories, you know, of people who, who are able to part bodies of water and, 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 and win these great battles and defeat giants and all this kind of stuff, I read that and I go, you know, I know this is true, but what in the world does it have to do with me? Because when's the last time you had to fight a giant? I don't mean metaphorically, I mean really. When's the last time you had to confront a king about his sin, knowing that you might get your head chopped off for doing it? When was the last time that you had to challenge 400 false prophets and put your, your life on the line to do it? We read these things and we go, um, <clears throat> this is great and it's encouraging and everything, but I just don't know if that's what the life of faith is about. I didn't even have those opportunities in my life. I never even get that option in my life. And if I did, I'm sure I would run the other way. I can't imagine that I would have the kind of faith that these people had. 
Most of us have never been called to do anything like that. But we are called to live a life of faith. How do we do it? How do you and I live a life of faith? I want to suggest that we do it as we change a diaper, as we love a friend, as we stay faithful to a spouse even though we're tempted, as we encourage somebody who's hurting, as we stand up for somebody who's being abused, as we teach someone about a God who loves them, as we share a meal with somebody who needs a companion. I mean, that's the life of faith too, isn't it? Isn't that the opportunity that God gives to us on a regular basis? I mean, we could really read our Old Testament in particular, and the New Testament for that matter, see these great stories and go, wow, these people are not like me. I can't live like that. I'm not Elisha. But could you be the Shunammite woman? Could you be that person? Could you be a person who whenever God says, listen, here's an opportunity for you, you could actually get involved in what God is doing? Could you love people the way Jesus loves them and express his grace to them? See, I look at that and, and, and I think about the opportunities that we have, and particularly on Father's Day. And if you'll just bear with me, I just want to take a minute to talk to dads and to say to the dads out there, just by nature of your position as somebody's father, you have the opportunity to be a hero of the faith. You really do. And it's probably going to be lived out in ways that nobody will ever write about and that you wouldn't even think anybody ever noticed. But there are eyes that are watching you, dads, and they are learning about God from you. And they're learning about what it means to to love a family from you. And they're learning about what it means to have integrity from you. And they're learning about what it means to keep your promises and all of those kinds of things. You have the opportunity, dads, to be a hero of the faith. You don't have to perform miracles. What could be more miraculous than raising up a godly family who, because of your testimony, knows that God is faithful? See, if we're not careful, we build up a life of faith to be something that is, for most of us, unattainable. It's just, it's just impractical. But I really prefer the way that God sums it up in his word. I want you to turn to the little book of Micah. It's toward the very back of your Old Testament. If you get to Matthew, you went too far. I want you to go to Micah, and it's, uh, it's right after the book of Jonah. And I want you to turn to Micah chapter 6. And uh, as Christians, this is not a verse that um, a lot of us are as familiar with as we should be. Most Jews have this verse memorized. Because to the Jewish mindset, it is Micah chapter 6 verse 8 that really sums up the practical life for a follower of God. And, and I think that in the same way that Jesus sums it up in the New Testament, Micah sums it up in the Old Testament. And I want you to see this verse with me. It's Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? You want to talk about the life of faith? Does it have to be this gigantic, theologically complex um, uh, life that is hard to explain and hard to understand? I don't think so. I think God explains it to us in the simplest terms in Micah 6, 8. Nothing fancy here. No fanfare. No reporters following us around. 
Our names are never going to be in the history books if we just live this way. But let's remember what we learned already in this series on faith. We said that the purpose of life is to be pleasing to who? God. The purpose of life is to be pleasing to God. And then we saw in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that apart from what, it's impossible to please God. Apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. So the purpose of life is to please God. Apart from faith, it's impossible to do that. And so the life of faith is absolutely essential to any of us who want to be successful. So a faithful life is a life that is successful because it pleases God. You want to know what it is to please God, what that looks like? Micah tells us, do justice. Do what is right in a given situation. Do what's right. You know, wow, this must be more complicated than that. Nope. Do what's right. When somebody's hurting, help them. When you have an opportunity to take advantage of someone, don't. When, when, you, when you see somebody in need, address their problem. When you see that there's an injustice in the world, address it and do something about it. Just do what's right at work. When you have an opportunity to maybe hide some money that nobody will know about it and will increase your profits, don't do it. Why? Because it's not right. Do what is right. Simple. And you know what? I know that not every one of us could teach a class on ethics, but every one of us knows right from wrong, don't we? Don't we honestly know in most situations when the, when the grocer gives you back uh, change for a 50 when you only gave her a 10, don't we all know what the right thing to do is in that situation? I mean, this is not rocket science, is it? It's right to share with people. It's right to care for people. It's right to love people. We know this. And Micah says, so do it. You want to know what God requires of you? Do justice, Micah says. The second thing he says is love kindness, or, or in some of your translations, it will say love mercy. It's the same Hebrew word for kindness and mercy. In other words, take care of those in need. Just be a blessing to others. As you read the Bible, one of the things that frustrates me so much is that so much of what we hear today in the hyperbole of what people complain about Christians is that we, we have all these rules, but we don't love people, right? And as I've said many times, we can complain all we want about that reputation or we can look in the mirror and admit that we've earned it. And so the reason people think that we're not as loving as we should be is because we're not as loving as we should be. And so he says, look, be kind, love mercy, do what is good for people, bless people. There's a lot of people out there who completely reject God, but are out there working their tails off in order to help the downtrodden and the underprivileged. Well, there's a lot of people who name the name of Jesus who are sitting back just enjoying the comfort of their life and not doing anything about it. And that's good reason for lost people to wonder what the church is all about. He just says, you want to you do what God wants? Do justice, love kindness. And thirdly, walk humbly with your God. This is what I've been trying to say in a thousand different ways. It's a walk. It's a journey. It's a day-by-day -day thing. It's not a list of 10 things to check off. It's a matter of walking in relationship with God in humility so that when God brings you to a situation and shows you a way to serve Him, you do it. You humbly obey your Father. He says, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. And here's what I'm here to tell you. You may be blown away by people like Elisha and all their faith, and I'm here to tell you, you can be a hero of the faith too. It's simple. Do justice, love kindness, 
Walk humbly with your God. Not that complex. Jesus said basically the same thing, didn't he, in a different way? He said, love God and love people. They said, sum the whole thing up for us, all the teachings of the Bible. He said, love God and love people. It's just another way of saying the same thing that Micah said. And you know what? You can do that. You and I can walk by faith. You and I can be a hero of the faith. In the book of Ezekiel, there's this haunting passage in chapter 22. Take a minute, find Ezekiel in your Old Testament. It's just probably 20 pages back from where you're at in Micah. Go to Ezekiel chapter 22. And, and, and there's this haunting passage in Ezekiel chapter 22. It's a prophecy, and I just want to read it to you. And, and, and Ezekiel is speaking the word of God here to the nation of Israel who has turned away from him. Listen to what Ezekiel, what God says through Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 22, beginning in verse 23. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to her, that is Israel, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in a day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst, like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They've devoured lives. They've taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in the midst of her. In other words, the prophets, the ones who are supposed to speak for God, are instead devouring the people. Verse 26, her priests, the ones who are supposed to connect the people to God, have done violence to my law, have profaned my holy things, have made no distinction between the holy and the profane, and they have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they hide their eyes from my Sabbath, and I am profaned among them. Verse 27, her princes, their political leaders within her, are like wolves tearing the prey and shedding blood and destroying lives in order to get dishonest gain. Verse 28, again, the prophets. The prophets have smeared whitewash from them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, the Lord God has not spoken. Verse 29, the people of the land have practiced oppression, committed robbery. They have wronged the poor and the needy and have oppressed the sojourner without justice. Now, I have a question for you. Does that sound familiar vaguely? A, a society where God's name is profaned? A society where the religious leaders are getting over on the people? A society where the political leaders are on the take instead of doing what is right for the people? A society where the people have basically turned and gone away from God and are running amok and living life however they... Could you imagine living in a society like that? It's a haunting. It's a ha it's, it, if, you, if you just put the United States in there instead of Israel... It would read the same. But what's really haunting to me is verse 30. After describing that terrible situation, God says in verse 30, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it. But I found no one. It's so interesting who God was looking for. I was just looking for one person, just one person, a person who would, who would make up the gap, a person, a person who, would, who would stand up and, and call out to me on behalf of the people, a person who would speak to the people on behalf of me, who would stand in the gap between me and these people. I just looked for one person. He doesn't say, I looked for a king. He doesn't say, I looked for a warrior. He doesn't say, I looked for a hero. He doesn't say, I looked for a prophet or a priest or anything like that. Just anybody, just one person. 
And in all of Israel at that time, he could not find one person who would say, God is the most important thing there is. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Let that sink in. He wasn't looking for a miracle worker. He was looking for a person who would take God at his word and act in obedience. Just a person, just one person who would cry out to God on behalf of the people and speak to the people on behalf of God. Just, any, just one person who would see people as an opportunity to bless them rather than an opportunity to take advantage of them. Who would, who would walk with God by faith and help other people do the same. Just one person. God was looking for a person of faith. And tragically, he found no one. And if we had the time and we would keep reading through Ezekiel, you would see the wrath of God poured out upon the people that he called his own family because not one of them would stand in the gap. And I have to ask this, where is God going to find a hero today? Where can God go to get a genuine, selfless, fearless world changer who will serve God? Can he just go to World Changers R Us and have Amazon.com delivered or something? Can he do that? Where do you get people like that? There's a famous quip about a man who was driving through a small town in the south, and as he was driving through, he stopped at this little gas station that had a little store and a country store kind of thing, and an old man sitting in a rocking chair, and he went up and talked to the old man, and he was asking him about the town, and he said, let me ask you a question. Have any great men been born in this town? And the guy said, nope, just babies. Here's the thing, people of faith, you don't just go make them, you don't just go buy them, you don't just go find them, they grow into that. Are you growing into that? Are you becoming the kind of person where God would say, when I looked, I found someone, someone who put me first, someone who said, yes, God, someone who would walk with me in that way. See, the life of faith is really pretty simple. You just have to live as though you actually believe that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. You don't have to be a prophet. You don't have to be a king. You don't have to be a celebrity or a pastor or a leader of some organization. You just have to be a willing servant of God. And guess what? You can do that. The life of faith is available to you. And by his grace, you can be a hero of the faith. And as you do, you will get to see God change lives. And as he does that, he'll change the world. And all of us will stand back and say, what a mighty God we serve. Amen?